This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent, and today we've got a bonus conversation uh, with Bethany Lacina. She's an associate professor of political science at the University of Rochester, and she did a study, an academic study, political science on <laughs> Star Wars fandom and toxicity in the fandom. So she wrote in the Monkey Cage blog at the Washington Post, who hates Star Wars for its newfound diversity? Here are the numbers. And then Bethany goes on to sort of lay out a study that she did on Star Wars Twitter uh, and who drives toxicity, how much, why, and what defines uh, the toxicity. So like talking, looking at hate speech, looking at negative tweets, and sort of where the numbers are inflated, where they're undercounted, and some of the findings will surprise you. This is a really interesting study and just something incredibly unique to actually get um, in terms of uh, academia about Star Wars fandom and the, the debate and the conversation more so than the debate that we're always having um, on Beltway Banthas on a week-to-week basis. So I'm going to get out of the way and cut straight to this conversation with Bethany Lucina of the University of Rochester. Bethany Lucina, welcome to the podcast. It's really nice to have you. Um, you're an associate professor of political science at the University of Rochester, and you did a study tapping into the toxicity of uh, fandom and Star Wars on Twitter. This is a pretty hot topic right now, just uh, not really because of the toxicity itself and because it's also guiding the news. We've seen Twitter on the Hill yesterday in Washington um, talking about harassment and sort of hate speech and everything on their platforms. What drove you to do this study? Uh, And then we'll talk a little bit about the details of it. I was interested um, because of another part of what's going on in American politics, which is more and more of popular culture becoming really politicized. So um, people debating things like kneeling during the anthem before NFL games or um, uh, the anti-female Ghostbusters campaign that kind of launched Milo into public consciousness. Um, This feeling of alienation from popular culture has become the signature issue of a political movement, which sort of loosely called the alt-right. And it's kind of an amorphous movement, but it has become a big part of everybody's lives. And it makes me a little sad the way uh, it's crept into so many people's hobbies. And I wanted to look at that. 
Yeah, well, it's no secret that Star Wars fandom has been divided for a long time about the politics of the franchise. And we hear a lot on this show from people who are exasperated with uh, discussing the politics of Star Wars, even though they're there. And what we try to do is make it positive and make it a good experience for everybody. Before we dive in, one more quick question for you. You mentioned in our our first email conversation that you have heard of Beltway Banthas. Uh, Are you familiar with our podcast in in the past? Um, yes, although I hope there won't be a quiz. I'm not sure I've listened to them all. <laughs> no, there is no quiz associated. I'm just fascinated. Uh, it's always great to talk to a political science professor about Star Wars. So your study, um, you collected thousands of tweets from Star Wars fans and used computer algorithms, as you said, in the Washington Post to sort of characterize fan conversations. Tell us a little bit about the study and the top line findings and basically the methodology of it. Okay. Um, right after uh, Kelly B- Marie Tran quit Twitter, there uh, was a kind of, there was a debate um, on the fan Twitter feeds that is a perennial topic of discussion with people saying, look, everyone gets harassed online. It's just a part of being online and it's not really any different for um, one group of people versus another. And I realized that would be a pretty easy thing to check. So I pulled a bunch of tweets where people were talking about Star Wars in general and compared them to tweets where people were specifically talking about either Rose Tico or Kelly Marie Tran. Um, and found that uh, people talk about these things in different ways. They use more offensive language, um, more inflammatory language when they talk about um, Rose slash Kelly um, yeah. than when they talk about the rest of Star Wars. And then um, I looked at the comments that were being sent to um, podcasters and found that you know, people send different kinds of comments to male and female Star Wars podcasters. And the overall level of people saying nasty things um, on Star Wars Twitter is, in the big scheme of things, maybe not even that high, but it is not evenly spread. And that's a part of how polarized our cultural politics has become. Yeah, I mean, you definitely kind of reject the idea that it is, you know, just some sort of coincidence and that there is definitely um, something to be seen here for the people who get targeted by this and the reasons that they're targeted. Um, What are the algorithms developed by Cornell University and the tools that were used um, to do this study? So um, this is all from a lab called the, uh, I call them SDL, what does that stand for? Social Dynamics Lab. And the way this works is fairly inductive. uh, That all algorithms of this type start in roughly the same way, which is they take a bunch of text and get human beings to categorize it um, according to whatever, uh, you know, they're interested in. So is this offensive? Is it not? Is this hate speech? Is it not? Is this um, uh, toxic? Is it not? Um, And then they tell the computer, okay, these are the right answers. 
find us a model that would get us close to the correct answers. So the algorithms have a kind of black box quality. They're very inductive. They're not driven by a particular theory of, okay, these are the bad words. Um, and something, and I was, I was most concerned with, I don't want to label something hate speech if it's really not anybody's definition of hate speech. So anything that got flagged as hate speech, I went back and reread and deleted uh, things that were, were clear false positives. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you about the false positives actually, because, you know, defining hate speech is a, a, a pretty rancorous topic and also a very mm-hmm. important one. Um, but how, can you offer an example sure. of what might've been flagged as a false positive in fan right. discourse? So, um, a threat of violence will uh, trigger the algorithm to say, okay, that's hate speech. So one of the false positives was just this particularly exuberant discussion of the death of Emperor Palpatine. Um, And uh, the the algorithm really doesn't have any way to know that that's fictional violence. Um, So uh, that's the kind of thing I threw out. Um, the, The other thing that sometimes happens is people quote other people. Um, and if it was really clear that they hadn't meant to endorse the sentiment, went ahead and threw those out. Um, but I guess arguably quoting hate speech is all itself a form of hate speech, but I wanted to be conservative in the estimates since that's. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, a, I mean, that's an important uh, tack to take there because you don't want to double count instances right. of hate speech. Like when you said, uh, you know, someone might parrot what someone said to quote it and then comment on it. And you also note that hate speech yeah. is very often deleted mm-hmm. by the platform, which I actually find surprising <laughs> that they are that good at removing it because we hear so much about what they don't remove. Um, but tweets with offensive language or hate speech are from accounts. They usually have fewer followers, mm-hmm. all that. Um, you mentioned that they they usually uh, include lesser endorsements, like they have less retweets, less replies. What do you think that says about the popularity of those views and sort of really hateful Star Wars fans? Because I feel like they exist in a, a world where I don't know. It's it's they don't really have that much support, but they're just very loud people. Yeah, um, something that uh, we didn't have room for in the Monkey Cage article was trying to parse, um, was this uh, political discontent with Star Wars so big that it is actually the reason why Solo underperformed? And um, that is a different kind of data that also suggests that the people who are sort of specifically mad about Star Wars politics are, are fairly limited. Um, much like the getting fewer likes, getting fewer um, retweets. Uh, and I think in general, if if the all right and internet trolls have a have a superpower, it's that they say ridiculous things and they put people who are targeted on edge and people who want to be critical um, in this unpleasant situation of having to defend trollish behavior 
and they can kind of break a conversation um, just by being outrageous. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that assessment that the tactic that is used by those types of people and particularly all right accounts is to sort of do mind games on everybody. Um, and also then draw out, um, I guess their, their opposites into these prolonged fights that then they can sort of use for their own purposes. And then you have the entertainment publications that then sort of focus on these arguments and then Mm -hmm. amplify them to their larger audience. And then it sort of snowballs from there into more and more people fighting about, Maybe maybe an exchange has sort of happened in, in a little bit of a microcosm. Yes. And I think that that's I think that speaks to a theory that I had had, which this is why I noticed your piece in, in particular is because it sort of goes against something I said on the podcast two weeks ago. So we were talking about discourse on the podcast two weeks ago, and I said that, you know, I think there's something to be said for that. A lot of the people who you might engage with in Star Wars fandom who are the worst, the most like persistent and toxic might either A, be bots or be professional trolls. And we were kind of talking about that in the context of, you know, like Russian bots and all mm-hmm. those kind of farming oper- operations that they have going on over there. Cause we know that those foreign forces do focus on pop culture events in the United States, you know, things like uh, the NFL kneeling and the black Panther mm-hmm. movies, those were where that popped up. But you go against the idea that bots are actually a leading part of this problem and that you really are dealing with authentic fans and accounts. Um, Can you unpack that a little bit for me? Yeah, there's only one uh, good tool I know of to detect whether something is a bot, which is a program run by the University of Indiana. It's called Batometer. Um, you can go to their website and enter in any Twitter account and they will they will do their best guess as to uh, whether it's a bot. Um, and it's possible that uh, there's people out there who've figured out how to beat the system and so that uh, there are a lot more bots than we realize um, and they've, they're, you know, if they're good enough at their job, right, they're going undetected. So in yeah. some ways it's, it's hard to know. Um, the professional troll question is, is an interesting one. Um, Twitter is, is dominated by people who are kind of advertising mm-hmm. content. Um, almost everybody on there occasionally posts, I did this thing. Um, and, you know, eventually somebody's got a brand um, and you know, it may or may not be super lucrative, but you can't just abandon the brand. Um, and and I'd like to I'd like to flag two things. Um, a number of people who. Uh, you know, get a lot of flack in the Star Wars community to have the sense they think they're doing God's work. So um, maybe, uh, you know, professional provocateur is is the term they prefer. Um, yeah, are you talking about kind of trollish people who are on the, the hate side or, or sort of Star Wars fandom supporters? Well, both. Um, it's okay. always hard to know when people are being uh, sincere on Twitter, but uh, that is true. <laughs> uh, I do think uh, that it must be at least some people who just feel 
that uh, it's important to push back against what they see as an unfortunate political trend in Star Wars. And you know, you had noted that you compared Star Wars-related tweets um, about Kelly Marie Tran, mm-hmm. um, you know, who was you know sort of pushed off social media, um, or comments and tweets about Rose Deco, her last Jedi character, and that the proportion of tweets with offensive language doubled from six to twelve percent. Um, not necessarily like racist or sexist disdain towards the movie, mm-hmm. um, but the point was that the comparison, um, you know, is that when you, when you end up talking about someone who happens to be of color or someone mm-hmm. who happens to be female, the, the offensive tweets double, you know, right. like it, it's not just uh, a coincidence because you note this for Ray and Daisy Ridley. You also note it for Kathleen Kennedy. Um, and you, you talked about Andy Gutierrez uh, in your study yes. as well. It's not a coincidence that these people happen to get more hate. Um, why did you think it was important to kind of focus on that and really uh, solidify your point there? Yeah. The number of people who are, uh, you know, on Twitter saying, you know, explicitly, I hate that there are women and people of colors in this movie, like God not want a Jedi to be female is, is really pretty small. Um, it's, I think, more about the subtle differences in the way people are treated. And the other point I want to make here is this isn't uh solely a right-wing thing. Um, Twitter is overwhelmingly uh, left-leaning and probably couldn't get the results again unless people of all political stripes weren't guilty of some of the same behavior. So if I go around Twitter doing, I don't know, the most lefty thing you can imagine, like uh, complaining that there's not enough rights of the proletariat discussion in Star Wars. Um, but I'm just much meaner about it when I'm berating a female podcaster for how dare you overlook the workers than when I am berating a male podcaster about it. This is unconscious sexism at work, and it's part of what makes social media less rewarding for that's that's really interesting, you know, because I can think of some different male and female podcasters and the kind of comments that they get. And, you know, this is a lot of this is anecdotal, particularly on my part. You did the study, so I feel like you have like evidence. <laughs> but, you know, just from a, a 30,000 point view, like I have um, seen people try to be more diplomatic, explain themselves, mm-hmm. talk in three, uh, tweet threads with male podcasters because they really want to try to like explain themselves. Where with female podcasters and content creators, people just sort of shout their opinion and then leave uh, and then don't really give people an opportunity to dialogue. They just want to say their bit and then go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, even that, like we had a, we had a, a listener who I guess had dropped in, I'd never heard from them before last week, who was really angry that the two female guests on our show last week um, said some things that they disagreed with as a socialist. Um, And it was like I had platformed them, like I had given them an opportunity to speak. And he was just so mad that they went unchallenged. Mm -hmm. And I've never gotten... I've never gotten that kind of comment from anybody, um, you know, where in a podcast discussion, someone had to be challenged or, or shut down. And I, I don't know, I didn't really view it as a coincidence that it just happened to be two female guests who, who didn't 
in that person's view, do their job as a Star Wars fan or as a political observer? Yeah. Um, one of the things that motivated me to do the study is around the time Kelly Marie Tran quit Instagram and then when Andy Gutierrez was getting uh, harassed, there were people saying that they had this feeling they were being gaslit. Like, I know I'm being treated badly, but nobody seems to take it seriously. And it's hard to point to, you know, it's, it's not like I'm getting death threats, but I don't feel like I'm getting a fair shake. Um, and that's kind of the power of aggregating everybody up and comparing instead of picking on anyone tweaked or any one um, uh, instance where someone said something uh, you don't like. Did you parse any of these uh, sort of hateful tweets and, and offensive tweets um, by political identity? Or were you able to make a distinguishment about like where on the political spectrum this heat comes from? So I originally thought I would be able to do that. Um, but the vast majority of this is just sort of swooping in and swearing at someone. And um, I didn't want to fall into the Twitter trap of assuming that everyone who's belligerent has political views opposite to mine. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll just leave it. I'm not going to say who's most at fault. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that's an important thing to, to try to hone in on because, um, you know, the the left on left violence, <laughs> verbal violence on Twitter can also be pretty intense. It, to me, it kind of, it tends to look um, like accounts on the left are usually like more like real people with higher follower counts, maybe blue check marks sort of attacking mm-hmm. um, other people in fandom for sort of not being far enough to their side. I think Kathleen Kennedy is someone who like gets the the brunt of everybody's yes. hatred. Yes. Cult- the cultural left hates her, the cultural right hates her because they all think that she is betraying their causes. And so I, I do think it's important to note that like the the negativity just sort of seems to fume um, everywhere. And then you had kind of mentioned the the hateful accounts with really low follower counts and low engagement. I always tend to think of those more as like the right leaning mm-hmm. accounts. Um, I don't really I don't really know why that is, um, but that's kind of the way again like anecdotally I've always thought about yeah. it. This is this is anecdotal, but I do have this sense that. One of the things that seems to happen on Twitter is you know, someone generally right wing says something ridiculous, and then a bunch of blue check mark people spend a bunch of time just dunking on this person, um, and you know everybody laughs it up, and that, <laughs> yeah. that serves to kind of uh, make the conversation about toxicity and distract from whatever else people might be talking about. Um, the, you know, there's, there's sort of no question that like the, the balance of numbers on Twitter is with the left. So, uh, that tends to play yeah, out. No, I mean, and, I think, you know, the yeah, right wingers get more and more of a siege mentality and, and, you know, it's, it's kind of vicious. And they go back to go back to Reddit and they find their friends and then they yes. come back in, in larger numbers like sand <laughs> people. Uh, 
Um, this is this is a tough question to ask, and then I want to kind of move on to some more okay. light stuff, and then we'll wrap up. Um, but again, this is a tough question because I know it can come off as sort of like, are some people asking for negative engagement? Which I'm not mm-hmm. asking that, but how do you think we should think about what draws negative tweets? I don't want to name names, but you have some anti-bullying podcasters and Star Wars authors out there um, who really beat the drum about you know trying to make things more positive. Uh, but then they also relish in saying really nasty things about their political opposites. Yes. And then lo and, be- th- then lo and behold, the attacks begin on that mm-hmm. person um, in response to something that they tweeted, which I think objectively might have been pretty pretty mean. Um, is there any use in looking at incitement when gauging this problem? Obviously, that does not apply to actors and to right. Andy Gutierrez yes. and I think these higher profile figures, but particularly like podcasters who engage in politics on the side. But, um, something that... Uh, I've been thinking about and trying to decide um, what what is the right way to think about someone being harassed on Twitter. Um, the the way the algorithms work is they take this the view almost like a reader. Everything that's upsetting is potentially offensive to the reader, and therefore uh, they flag it. But it doesn't really follow that the person who owns the account is being attacked. Um, Most tweets are greeted with lots of people agreeing with the tweet. Um, And if you get a bunch of people complimenting you in offensive terms, that doesn't mean you're being harassed. And it also, it's it's not exactly harassment to start a flame war and then get in a flame war. And I've thought about, would it be possible to study this by looking at sort of like the the difference in language between the original post and the reply? Um, Mm -hmm. I I haven't, uh, you know, cracked the code yet. I I suppose, you know, um, an ethics professor would say, you know, it it doesn't matter if they're inciting, bad behavior is bad behavior, but... um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Incitement is also part of some people's brands. Yeah, that is true. Um, Gizmodo had some uh, Gizmodo IO9 had mm-hmm. some criticism to offer this morning um, of the study and kind of the, the bit that was put out in the Washington Post. Have you had a chance to look at that yet? Only very briefly. Yeah, I mean, the basics of it seemed to be that they thought the scope of the study was very limited mm-hmm. um, by nature and was a step in the right direction. You you kind of acknowledge that in yes. your actual study um, in PDF form online. Um, are, how do you feel about the utility of the research that you did? How can it be used? And are you trying to get it in front of any people of note in the Star Wars um, universe or orbit? Well... The use I imagined for it was that maybe this would make somebody feel better about uh, this sense that I feel like I'm being targeted and yet I can never quite put my finger on it. Um, Mm -hmm. And it hadn't occurred to me to go up the up the chain with it. Um, Go up the chain, Bethany. (laughs) uh, The the choice to, to limit the people in the study was um, specifically because one of the things fans debate about is are certain people shills for Lucasfilm? Um, so I 
took a group of people who all had a kind of like Lucas, you know, there's some reason to think they've, they've gotten a pat on the head from Lucasfilm um, because I was concerned that, you know, maybe it's that women podcasters are treated better by Lucasfilm and um, so they're the shills and that's the real difference. So I wanted to make sure that everybody in the study was vulnerable to the charge of being, you know, just a Lucasfilm hack. Um, so that's what set the scope of it. Uh, and um, there's, uh, in terms of thinking about whether it should be extended, if I had a clearer idea of how it might be, well, I'm not, I'm not sure uh, where I can most usefully extend it. I haven't figured that out yet. I, I pulled three podcast listener questions, and I think that might sort of speak to this next one. John Liang asks, what is the next step for your research mm -hmm. into toxic fandom phenomenon? Um, do you have sort of another follow-up study like this in mind, or are you going to cap out on your Star Wars fandom research? So the, the uh, professional or the... The, the thing I feel like I have to do if I want this to be like an academic study is crack this problem of is somebody really being harassed or just they say crazy things and then people reply with crazy things. I feel like that's what I would need to figure out to, to you know, publish this in, in uh, you know, my, my home ecosystem. Yeah, um, yeah. I... Um, yeah. Oh, oh, no, go ahead. Sorry. I had no idea whether anyone would be interested. And so I am uh, reassessing my plans in light of the fact that, you know, someone actually read it, which is which is a new experience for an academic. Oh, man, there, there are so many. I don't think you're on Twitter, but there are so many people chittering <laughs> and chattering about this. Um, so it is getting a lot of attention. Um, Kate asks, uh, do you see a necessity for entertainment outlets who cover this toxicity for clicks as taking advantage of the problem rather than offering the targets of harassment a platform to speak. And I, I think that basically going to say like, do you think there's like an industry out there for capitalizing on toxicity by saying they're helping instead of like actually giving the victims of harassment a, a way to actually get their voices out there in fandom? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the... You know, you, you see articles come out on uh, sort of web-only news sites that, that are, are basically nothing but somebody's tweet that was a particularly good smackdown of someone on the right, and let's all congratulate them. Um, and that, right, that, doesn't, in any, that doesn't really empower anyone. It just encourages, uh, you know, it, it gives, a, gives a treat to um, the person who managed to be most cutting um, in their reply. And then it kind of rallies, rallies people to the defense of the person who got smacked down. And, and I have to say, it, it's very hard to resist the allure of a good smackdown. So... Um, so I see why they do this, but, um, uh, the flame, the flame wars are yes. real. <laughs> I, uh, um, yes, I, I mean, I, I think that's, that's absolutely, absolutely fair. Um, to say that there's, uh, uh, at this point, there's a bunch of people who've managed to monetize fighting on Twitter. Um, 
kind of kind of amazing. No, I mean, and, and to Kate's question as well, like, yeah, I, I see that that problem existing, and I, I absolutely think that there is a, a dearth of voices, um, you know, in these outlets to actually um, give people who are subject to these sort of things and uh, in the fandom a place to write and put their views out there. Yes, um, and you know, it. Other people, I think, uh, so. Uh, Kirsty and Rachel on Scavenger Horde, uh, that's a podcast. They always do a very nice job of pointing out when someone's having a discussion of toxic fandom that doesn't, you know, include anybody who, um, you know, is likely to have been the target of racism or sexism. Yeah. And uh, Kate is the uh, co-host of the But Why Though podcast. And um, this last question, I think you spoke to it earlier. It's from uh, Nick DeCalandria. He asks, what was Bethany most surprised by in her research? Like what hypothesis did not pan out? Uh, I noted earlier, you said you were not able to, uh, you thought you'd be able to, to see political alignment and you weren't able to really mm-hmm. pull that out. Um, is there anything else besides that, that was sort of a, a going hypothesis that you were not able um, to conclude on? I was maybe a little too skeptical going into it. I I had the idea that people were um, even worse than I think they actually are, um, but that's that's human nature, of course, right? Criticism just uh, resonates louder than praise. So yeah. there there it isn't anything like a majority of star Wars Twitter that is, um, uh, yeah, clearly sexist, or clearly racist, or clearly nasty. Um, I think there are probably pervasive, this pervasive unconscious bias thing, but, um, people being just explicitly awful to each other is not as common as I thought going in. Well, that is certainly good to hear. Um, You mentioned Scavenger's Horde, uh, the podcast. The last thing I wanted to know before we wrap out was what podcast do you listen to? Because seeing uh, this study done, and I saw a lot of friends and people in the Star Wars community cited in the footnotes of the pages of your report, um, it seemed like you live in this ecosystem, but you're also not on Twitter to the best of my knowledge. So what podcast do you listen to? Who in fandom do you like? Um, yeah, I, I'd love to know. Yeah, so I, I did my first tweet yesterday because I wanted to give a heads up to the people who were in the study. Um, uh, as you might guess from my research, I have somewhat mixed feelings about Twitter. Yeah. Um, and I tried to at least dip my toe into everybody's podcast uh-huh. that that I quoted. Um, so, uh, I don't know. It just seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, when the score was still going, I listened to that really religiously. I'm very interested in music and Star Wars. Oh, okay. um, and... Uh, I like to listen to to Steel Wars when he interviews, you know, somebody I know. Could you tell us real quick what uh, what your some of your favorite Star Wars is, whether that be shows, a certain movie or two? So I, I grew up with it, you know. So if I concentrate, I can hear my mom's voice reading the opening crawl. Oh, that's it's great. Just a big part of my life. Um, my my kids want to watch the Ewoks every single weekend. So um, that is by far the part I'm most familiar with. So Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That that 
you know, 30 minutes. We, we really know those, knows that bit. Um, but I, I will also like, I actually, I wouldn't think Star Wars was important even if I didn't like it. This is easily the piece of popular culture that is most widely shared in the United States. And it becoming politicized is, is is important, you know, above and beyond uh, whether I like the next movie or not. Yeah, we've had some great conversations stem out of uh, the politics of Star Wars. And, you know, even as someone who loves the politics of Star Wars, politicization is a slightly different thing. Um, and it sort of implies like the weaponization of the franchise. And, you know, that's a that's a dangerous place to be and something that I think we have to uh, to watch for and try to try to be delicate with. So. Um, Bethany, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about your study. Um, again, it is actually getting a lot of attention out there. So um, just having you on here to sort of spell this out, um, I feel really blessed and lucky. Thank you for your time. Uh, it was my pleasure. Absolutely. Are you going to remain on Twitter or did you already uh, already leave? Because feel free to plug your handle. Um, so it is Bethany underscore Lacina, L-A-C-I-N-A. Um I'm not going to delete the account. <laughs> but she won't see your notifications either. Uh, I like I like the strategy. So give Bethany a follow. Um, Bethany Lucina, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Rochester. Thank you so much for joining Beltway Banthas. You're welcome. Okay, and that's it for our conversation with Bethany Lucina. You can find her on Twitter at Bethany underscore Lucina. And if you are a member of our Patreon following, you got this episode uh, and this content first, uh, probably more than a week ahead of everybody else. So thank you all who are involved with us on Patreon and help support the show. We're actually about to get some new gear um, with some of the funds that you have provided for this show to keep going. So I'm really excited about that. And you will hear us in your ears sounding smoother than ever. Uh, if you are not involved with us on Patreon and hearing this a week later, you should be involved at Beltway Banthas, or I'm sorry, patreon.com slash Beltway Banthas. And you can find out more about us on Twitter at Beltway Banthas. We'll be back next week with more in your feeds. Until then, may the force be with you always. <laughs>